Good morning. Let's take our Bibles and start there. Always a good place to start. So if you have a Bible, let's open it together to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. And if you need one, there's one in the seat in front of you. Mark, chapter 8. It matters how we read the Bible. The Bible um, is constructed by divine sovereignty and a plan to help us understand it. It's not fair to turn to the Bible and plop it open and pull a verse. Many times God will speak to us, in fact, just like that. But the greater strength of knowing the Bible is understanding the flow that God has designed in the books of the Bible to help us understand what he has given us in his word. And so today's question in our series is what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lost his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? We actually live in a day when people are ignoring the welfare of their own souls. And so what we're reading in Mark chapter 8 is the flow of four things that are taught about Jesus. One is his identity, and the second is his mission. The third is an invitation to respond to him, and the fourth is a warning. I want that to be in your mind because we'll spend 30 minutes together around this text and then we'll take communion. It's always important that I I want you to know where we're going in the service. I I have a general idea as I prepare, but we're going to take communion together. And communion is one of the holy moments in the life of a church to all bow before Jesus and acknowledge that he's died for our sins to forgive us, he suffered to bring us into relationship with himself, and communion is the time that the church prepares its heart. We all examine ourselves so that we can eat of the bread and drink of the cup in a way that is worthy of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It's not that we fix ourselves, it's that we come at the foot of the cross and we receive His grace fully. And I pray that your being in church today will be a spiritual awakening in a fresh way, a highlight of your week that you've met with God and heard from His Word. With that in mind, let's look at our text, beginning in Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of God for today. Listen, this text is a question that we hope to answer, and it surrounds the issue of what is the soul of man and in what state is our soul today. The soul is the internal part of who we are. In another place in the New Testament, Jesus was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? In um, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37, they said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Luke has a similar one that includes your strength. Your soul is the internal part of who we are. It's the Greek word phuxē, and it means the inner self or the person on the inside, and it is the immaterial principle of who we are as human beings created by God, united to a body, giving it life, but it continues after death. You might remember in the opening book of the Bible that the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. It's the same concept that on the internal part of man, he has a soul. We have a soul within us. We use the word soul a lot. We say, well, that was soul music, soul food. He's a soul, she's a soulful old self. We use the word soul in many different ways. Along that ways, if there's a plane crash, we say, well, how many souls were lost? Because the soul is the human part, the eternal part of what it means to be human We misunderstand what our soul is. 
When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well with my my soul, with what? With, with the internal part of me that relates to God, that holds all my life together, the animating principle of my internal life is my soul. Now, something's happened in America, and probably many other cultures too, is that we've minimized the role of the soul in the human life. And we've exchanged the welfare of the soul with the welfare of self. And we've taken away soul care and replaced it with self-care. And we talk about self-care a lot. It gets discussed all over the place. Um, The external care for the body and what's going on in my life. And self-care is about our strongest desires and not our deepest needs. And when you're alone and you're feeling sad and lonely and isolated and there's an interior problem in your life that you're not sure what to do with, what are we told to do today? You need a little self-care. Maybe you should go shopping. (laughs) Or get a massage. Or take a vacation. And self-care is sort of the mindfulness of, of what's around me and how am I doing. But the soul is what is related to God. And we need to elevate the real attention to soul care. What is your soul? How do you take care of it? What's going on on the inside of you? And how do you relate to God? The word soul is found in the Bible often. In fact, James talks about um, this same word in another kind of a way. Um, The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Well, double-minded is disukas, two souls, two minds, two internals. We're not sure where our soul is. And Peter concludes one of his chapters, although you don't see Jesus, you love him, and though you don't see him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice in joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, what the Bible is teaching is that every human being has a soul, the ability to relate to God, and all of life suppresses that life. The world presses that down, and Jesus came to say, what are you going to do with your soul in relation to to God? And, and do you know that your soul is rightly related to God? Well, that's the point of this passage. This passage is to say, what would you do if you gave yourself to everything in the world but your soul, your, your ability to relate to God and be right with him on the internal place that you are as a person that's going to live forever in heaven or hell? How do you make sure your soul is right with God? Well, I think this whole text unfolds the four things that I want you to see. One is that as Jesus is walking on the road, he begins to tell them in verse 27, who do you say that I am? And he's going to talk about his identity. We've read it already, but here you see that what Jesus is going to do here is to give his identity and to make it clear to them. 
And they said, well, the world is, is saying, this is who Jesus is. He's a great teacher. He's a prophet. He's just like John the Baptist, or maybe he is John the Baptist again. And people would say today their understanding of who Jesus is is all over the map. And I want you to know that what you think about Jesus is one of the more important things about your life. Do you know who Jesus is? And then Jesus said in the next verses, but who do you say that I am? And that's a question every one of us are going to have to answer in verse 29. Who, who do you say that Jesus is? And Peter stands and he answers for all of the disciples and he says, you are the Christ. In Matthew's account, you are the son of the living God, but you are the Christ. What does that mean? That means that all of the disciples have now understood that the identity of Jesus is that he is more than a teacher, he's greater than John the Baptist, he is greater than any of the prophets who have preceded him. You are the Christ. What does that mean? It, it's more than a title. It's a title that indicates that Jesus Christ is actually God of very God, and they now know it. They've been watching him for two years, listening to his teaching. They've seen all of his miracles. They've been living with him for every day for a couple of years, and they now are convinced that he is God in the flesh, walking among them, the very Messiah. This is a moment of super clarity for the disciples. They know who Jesus is. Now, before we leave this, this is the important thing that I would say to you, some of you I've talked to over the last several weeks, and you're new to church. What you think about Christ is crucial. If he's just another teacher, well, then read him and learn all you can and read the other teachers too. But if he is the Christ, if he is the Son of God, if he really always eternally existed and came into this world, then you must know that there's something spectacular about this Christ, that the things he's going to invite you to do are worthy to be done. His identity is now clarified. It's clarified to the disciples, but he does say to them, don't tell everybody yet. I think he wants to slow down the exposure and what's going to happen when they finally decide that he is the Christ and what's going to happen is he's going to go to the cross and be crucified. In fact, that's the second thing, is he begins to explain his mission. And he explains his mission in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. You've got to imagine that Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he says, listen, who, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of God. Okay, let me tell you something. The Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by all of these individuals, and then he's going to be killed, and he'll rise again on the third day. Why would Jesus do that? Once they know who he is and they affirm it, he said, well, this is why I've come. And he's clarifying his mission. This, if you're paying attention, is one of the really important reasons to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Because in his life, he promised what would happen, and it happened. Turn to the right in your Bible, chapter 9, and verse 30. And he says it again. There's a second occasion in which Jesus is walking on the road, and they pass through Galilee. 
And he didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise again. Okay, second time, he's, he's promising. If you look at chapter 10 and verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. They keep getting closer to Jerusalem. And verse 33 said, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of the chief priests, the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. You know, someone has said, if Jesus predicts his death in the kind of accurate way he did and then it happens, you should probably listen to what he says. He died and was buried and rose again. In our text, he had to go up to Jerusalem to be crucified. It's really um, one of the strongest affirmations of his death. In verse 32, it says of him that he said it plainly. So they now hear what he is saying. The Son of Man is going to die. He's going to be buried and he's going to rise again on the third day. I think they hear it. Do you think they're getting it? I really don't think they want to get it because Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Peter does not want the mission that Jesus said, this is why I've come into the world. To be killed and to rise again. Before we get to Peter's rebuke, why is the death and resurrection of Jesus necessary? That's a really important question. In his perfect life, he died for imperfect people to experience the forgiveness of their sins. He died as an atoning sacrifice on the cross that through his blood and sacrifice, all who believe in him shall be saved. This is why we're going to take communion this morning to embrace it with our own heart, and as we eat it, we proclaim the Lord's death for us until he comes. It was necessary that he had to go to Jerusalem and die and be raised again. But, but Peter does not misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He just doesn't like what he's saying. And he pulls him aside and rebukes him. And this is what we have to understand. You have to understand that they just said, you're the Christ, you're the God of very God, and you're saying to us that you are going to go to the cross, be flogged, be spit upon, be despised and rejected of men, and you're going to be crucified on a cross, the most despicable means of death, and you will be buried and rejected by men. Never let it be, Lord, Peter said. Peter did not want the suffering path of Jesus. And so in verse 33, here's the mission clarified. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Do you underline that in your Bible? Do you hear what the Christ is saying to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter was intending to set Jesus straight. 
that suffering and surely not death can await you. That is not the path of one who is the Christ. You're the Messiah, the chosen one, the son of the living God. And Peter rejects Jesus at the very thought of anything less than a triumphal entry into Jerusalem and soaring on to bring in the kingdom of God. And a lot of people believe that about Jesus, that if I just turn to Jesus, he will make my life triumphant in every way. It'll be just roses forever if I trust in Jesus. And many of us have been brought to Christ under the context of this will make your life better. Is that true? Well, yes and no. But if you trust Jesus for the hope of making your life better in this world, you're missing a really crucial dynamic of what Jesus is saying in this passage. And the flow of the Bible is he is the Christ and he's going to die and be mocked and he's going to be buried and he will rise again to glory. And Peter wants none of that suffering peace, only the triumphant. And Jesus said to him, you are talking like Satan. My mission is to die for the world. And if you abort that mission, you are doing the work of Satan. Just think back on all the temptations of Jesus. Satan was trying to get him to to alter his pathway, to go what Satan knew ultimately would go to the cross. Here's another temptation that Peter says, no, Lord, you can't go to Jerusalem and suffer. It's triumph. It's prosperity. That's the way of the Christ. And Jesus said to him, no, you are talking like Satan. And whenever we put our desires, our wishes over that of God, we are doing the work of Satan. We are doing the will of Satan. We are thinking like exactly what Satan wants. Now, he's real, and his mission is to thwart the work of God even in our lives today. That's what Satan wants. There are two or many incompatible ideologies at work here. Peter is wanting Jesus to usher in the great kingdom and all of its triumph. And Jesus is saying, my pathway is going to be to suffer before that occurs. And Peter says, no way, Lord, may it never be. I just want you to see what Jesus is saying. No, the pathway for the disciple may be similar to this. Hey, this is good news, right? No, this is hard news. It's like the pathway for every disciple of Jesus is going to be to follow Be willing to follow Jesus in the pathway that he went. So he he clarifies this message. So here's the challenge of the invitation, verse 34. Having straightened Peter out, you need to start thinking about the things of God, not the things of man. He calls all the people together, and he says, if anyone wants to come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I would underline that in your Bible. What is Jesus saying? Do you want to embrace my mission? Then you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Let's think about those. 
What Peter was saying to Jesus is, you need to assert your will to be triumphant. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to deny myself, and I'm going to go to the cross and die. And I'm going to chart the pathway for every Christian to be self-denying. And when it comes to Jesus, it means that we have to say no to ourselves, no to our own desire, and acknowledge that I'm a sinner, acknowledge that I'm not um, so hot, I'm broken, and I need him, and I can't fix myself, and I have to reject my own sense of self-righteousness and abandon every self-confident effort I have to make myself right with God, abandon my ambitions, my agenda, my plans, and say I deny myself, and it's Christ first in my life. Who wants that? And take up your cross. What is that? Well, it's a metaphor that Jesus is viewing that I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, and you have to take up this idea that suffering might be a part of what it means to follow Christ. And we all may need to do that. It's every believer who comes to Christ may not die the way he did. We may not suffer death or even physical persecution in this world, but many of us will know what it is like to take up our cross in the face of rejection, being ostracized, standing in a world that's moving headlong to hell, and we say, no, Christ is the Son of God worthy to be followed, to deny ourselves and take up our cross and be willing to suffer whatever rejection may come our way or hostilities from this world that says we're crazy for standing on the truths of this book and and bear the burden of suffering for standing with Christ. You with me on that? Like it is a hard world to say the things of God are worthy to be held to and though none go with me, still I will follow. Take up your cross and follow him. Observe and obey all that he's commanded. And here's the paradox. This is what's called losing your life. You lose your life in Christ. You say, I will give up all my self-effort and I will cling only to Christ alone. And what happens is it turns out you actually gain eternal life and save your soul. The next verse is our question. All right, well, what if you could gain everything in this world? What if you could gain all the comforts, all the pleasures, all the prominence, all the prestige that this world could offer you and your soul is broken, your soul is without God, what would be the gain? It'd be rich for a few years, maybe 75, maybe 80, maybe 90, maybe 100. And then what? Lose your soul? That's the point. The pathway of Jesus was glory to suffering to glory. And what Jesus is saying is, is this is what my disciples must be willing to do. Are you willing to lose your life for Christ and find your life in him? This is a warning. So we know his identity. We know his mission. His invitation is, come, follow me. Take up your cross. Die to yourself. Embrace Christ. What's the warning? Don't lose your soul. Don't be lost without Christ while you while we grab for all we can in this world. Listen, this is a satanic ideology that keeps people out of the kingdom of God. It's grabbing all the gusto of this world. You gain the world and lose your soul. 
There's a last little note on the warning. It's the next verse, verse 38 and 39. There it is, 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of his fathers with his holy angels. You get what he's saying. You have to get the sense of the context here. Jesus saying, looking at all the disciples and now the crowds, and he says, whoever's ashamed. Well, who, who was just ashamed? Peter. Lord, you can't do that, Lord. You, you can't go there. That would be awful. You suffered crucifixion. That would be horrible. Jesus says, if you're ashamed of what I've come to do, I will be ashamed of you at my coming. The Christian knows that embracing the work of Jesus, his substitutionary atonement, his full sacrifice, because we're all broken and we cannot save ourselves, he must save us. You must throw your life down, deny yourself, and say, only Christ can save me. I abandon all self-effort, and I say, Jesus alone. Peter was ashamed of Jesus in this moment. Later in his life, when Jesus went to the cross, Peter again was ashamed of Jesus. I don't even know that man, he said. I deny him, I deny him, I deny him. Why do I tell you that? Because the Lord restored Peter. And probably every one of us in this room would say, this makes me fearful. Because I've been ashamed of Jesus at times. I want you to think of what Jesus did to Peter. In this denial, in Mark 8, And at the denial at the cross, Jesus came to Peter and said, do you love me? Yeah. Uh, Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Maybe you need to say, Jesus, I do love you. Forgive me for not denying myself, for indulging myself. Forgive me, Lord. I want to embrace you. I want to follow the pathway. This is a very serious question, and I just would conclude this morning, how's your soul? What's going on in your soul? Are you, are you, is it well with you and God? And if it's not, then before we take communion, why don't you just talk to God? Do what Peter did. Peter said, I do love you, Lord. Forgive my unbelief. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I admit I cannot save myself. I cling to Christ alone. It's Christ alone. And that's the best way we could enter into communion this morning.